pool noodle attached to it. This would be perfect. Right? I mean, look, it's I can I I can I can measure stuff. I can extend stuff. It's got anti-shock. It's got a flashlight. I'm not old enough to know how to turn it on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a hurricane. Uh, uh. Yeah, no, this is this is perfect. And if y'all fall asleep during service, I got something to throw at you. You're clearly all scared of me, though. Look at this buffer right here. This is awesome. This is awesome. It's got a grip right here, so I can use it like a like you know ninja. Yeah. Maybe I can pick things up with it, you know. If it had a hand grabber on the other end, you know, then I would be, this is, this is good. I can't wait to see what today's going to hold. This is full of surprises. I'm going to put this back here because something tells me that, that it's going to show up next service too. Thank you guys. I, uh, I do want to follow up just a second on uh, what Warren was talking to us about, about the ministry at the University of Oregon, at Bushnell, at Lane Community College. Uh, you know, our college ministry is is an exciting part of, of, of Harvest Community Church. And, and NCM is bigger than Harvest Community Church. I want to be clear about that. It's something we partner with uh, sort of at a, a denominational level. But beyond that, I want you to see that NCM is an extension as well of Harvest Community Church. This isn't something that they do. This is something that we do. That we have the opportunity to minister to college students week in and week out. In fact... Warren left as soon as he was done on stage to go pick up college students so he can come right back with them for second service. And so we're going to have many opportunities this year to minister to college students. And we're gonna, uh, we really believe uh, last year was great. We had an, an incredible time with our college students from the University of Oregon. That's going to expand this year. You know, we're going to build on where last year went. And so there will be opportunities for you to find ways to plug in. It might be adopt-a-student kind of thing. It might be college ministry lunches. It might be going down to campus and doing things. I know I'll be on campus this week helping give away pizza at uh, one of their pizza outreach things that we do later, uh, later in the week. And so I just want you to see that when you're praying for this, this is a we thing, not a, not a Warren and Sarah Grace thing. Does that make sense? Right? It's something we get to do well. In fact, it is... International missions ministry in our backyard, literally. Uh, estimates would be that that two percent, two percent of students at the University of Oregon are engaging and embracing a faith in Jesus Christ, and there are students from all over the world who come here, and so and often those students are very hungry for understanding why we do what we do. And whether it's international students or American students or uh, you know even students from Corvallis, right? Which, Craig, I, I gotta say, man, I, I spent all day yesterday rooting for Oregon football and then rooting for Oregon State football. Yeah, it was a tough day. That was a tough day. I, uh, I grieve with you, man. <laughs> it was, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I wouldn't sleep. I, I you might. If I was Oregon, I wouldn't sleep on the beach this year. That's for sure. So, so all of that said, tremendous opportunities. Um, and, and and I mean, it's probably worth mentioning, right? I I have friends who do college ministry at the university at, at Oregon State University as well. And in fact, we have partners all over the Pacific Northwest at universities 
who do this very same thing that Warren and Sarah Grace do. And so thank you for your embrace of college students and the opportunity to live the gospel with them right here in our neighborhood. I, I'm excited to see what God does this year. Thank you for your prayers as well. This, this, uh, I'm believing this will be a powerful year, and uh, we need you to make that happen. If you have your Bibles, you might open them with me to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we've been slowly making our way uh, through these first few verses, and I'm excited uh, to study the Bible with us again today. Today, as we continue our series, Real ID, right, Real Identity, we're focusing on who we are, specifically who we are in Christ. Because we chase, uh, we chase a myriad of things when it comes to our identity, right? We, we're chasing some kind of feeling, we're chasing some kind of value, we're chasing some kind of meaning. But the meaning that really makes a difference is what we sang about this morning. When God says, you are my child, that you are loved. And I think we, we think that's true, sort of. See, I, I think that we Christians, <laughs> we think God loves us like on our best day. You know, when it's your birthday and people remind you of how valuable you are and the fact that you get a hammer flashlight cane that you can't, can't figure out how to turn on the light for, right? No button here. It should be a trigger on this, right? Right? Is it, does it turn? Does it, you know, it's, are you smarter than a hammer flashlight cane, right? So we think God loves us on our good days. And God wants me as his child on my best days. And I think we think that at best he tolerates us on our worst days. But that's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible says. Likewise, I think as we battle with sin, and, and, and let's, let's just be straight this morning, we all battle with sin, right? The, the, sin is a word that outside of church world, people don't like to use because, you know, it's kind of convicting. But there is a right and a wrong and I, I go a step beyond it. Not only do we battle with sin, we battle with sin every single day. And, and I, I would extend that even to every single moment. That if, if you and I think, God loves me on my good days when I don't sin. Yes. Because the word sin means to fall short of God's ideals. And I fall short every day. Not because I'm a bad performer, but because in me is a nature that really wrestles not only with right, but with wrong. And I have this wrestling match that happens inside of me. 
because I will, I will think today I want to do the right thing. And I'll find myself thinking the wrong kind of thoughts, knowing it's going to lead to the wrong thing. Anybody, anybody ever play this game? In fact, Paul captures it really well in Romans chapter 7. And this is, if ever there was a tongue-tied sentence in the Bible, you know, Peter pecked the pickled pepper, something or other pecked, you know, whatever that thing is. If ever there was a sentence in the Bible that would get you tongue-tied, I think this is it. So I'm going to try to say it correctly. But there's some odds I won't. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. Paul writes, and he says, and this is not what we're saying today, but it's just such a great example. He writes, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, but what I hate, I do. See, there I am, tongue-tied already. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. In other words, God's plans and expectations are good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Notice that phrase, sin, living, as though sin is alive inside of us. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature or in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He is saying that even when I want the right thing, I lack the capability to really do said right thing. For I, <laughs> for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Somebody should count the number of do's. What I know is that this description is pretty apt. And theologians, interestingly, debate this passage because there are people who say, well, this was Paul before he knew Christ. But I'll tell you, I'm thoroughly convinced that this is Paul every day. And he's talking about the difference between the flesh and the old life and Christ and the new life in context. And so just very quickly, I, I want to start out with three strategies that don't work. If we're in a battle with sin, and it's personal, every day of your life, every day of my life, if we're in a battle with, with, with wrong, with falling short, with things that aren't good, If we're in a battle every day, what doesn't work? Let me give you three strategies that don't work. Number one, the just stop it approach. You know, sometimes people will say to you, you know, you'll say, hey, I've gotten myself into a bad place. Sometimes in the world of addiction, we'll say, you know, I've hit bottom. And someone will say to you, well, just make the alternative choice. You know, maybe you have a problem with shopping. Shopping isn't a sin, but shopping when you don't have 
things when you don't have the ability to pay, right, can go there, right? I, you're like, wait, wait, wait why, why are we talking about shopping? I just want you to see that we classically think of addiction, things we can't stop doing. We classically think of that in terms of alcohol or drugs or, but there are a lot of acceptable ways we overindulge. Right? How, <laughs> how many preachers in your lifetime have you heard rail against something, and I'm just going to pick this out of the air, but drinking, but they look three times my size. Right? The reality is, for all of us, there is something we overindulge in, and at the root of that overindulgence is a focus and an obsession with self. And quite honestly, it's related to our identity. And we can't not. And someone will come along and say, well, this isn't that hard. Just stop. Maybe drinking's your thing. Maybe it's not shopping. Maybe lying is your thing. Maybe pride is your thing. Pride is all of our things. Someone will say, just stop that. That same person will tell you, I remember in, I got, last time I said, back in 1847, I referred to Marcy and I got in trouble for that. So I won't do that today. But someone, someone will say to you, I, I remember last time I sinned, back in 1946. It was like, exactly. It was a Tuesday. Sun was high in the sky. It's one of those things where when, when someone oversimplifies and just stop it is the answer. Well, duh, if I could just stop it, I would. Isn't that what Paul was saying? Just stop it doesn't work. The idea that I'm just going to will myself into a better mental, physical, emotional place so that I always choose right rather than wrong. To an honest human being, that ends up seeming like nonsense. Because I'm just not capable of it. Number two, you wouldn't expect to hear this one at church. You would expect church people to say, well, just stop it. Religious people, anyway. But the second one you wouldn't expect to hear in church is the I'll be more religious approach. You know, I, I've been out of church lately. Maybe, maybe this week I'll pick up my Bible. Maybe this week I'll do good. You know, maybe this week I'll help uh, someone across the street. This week, maybe, maybe I'll go to church, you know, that once a month church thing that we do. Maybe this week, I'll just be more religious. Maybe this week, I'll go to confession. Maybe this week, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not anti-confession. We'll talk about confession by the end of this. I'm not anti-confession. I, 
I, I don't necessarily agree with my Catholic friends that confession has to happen in the presence of a priest. The Bible says that if you are a Christian, you are a priest. You don't need a priest. But that said, those of us that aren't Catholic tend to avoid the idea of confession. All confession is is agreeing with God that I've done wrong. Which is actually helpful. But this idea that I'm going to be more religious and somehow my religiosity, notice the focus here is on me and what I do. That that's going to get me out of the sin game. That's like being down 100 to nothing in a football game and thinking playing marbles on the 50-yard line is going to make a hill of beans difference. Religious is not the answer, and religion is not the answer. One third approach that I think comes up a lot that, that you see a lot of Christians do, and frankly, a lot of non-Christians do. The fake it till you make it approach. We think, okay, so it turns out I'm not as good as I pretend to be, but I've got a reputation. After all, today is my birthday. And so I'm going to stand in front of people and I'm going to pretend that I'm something I'm not in hopes that one day I pretend my way into being what I'm pretending to be. And all that leads to is a life of guilt and shame. A hidden life. An escaped life. A life where others think more of me than is warranted by, what, than warranted by what I do or say. But because they think more of me, that's where it lies in my soul. And notice that too is about identity. Living for my reputation. And so instead of being honest and saying, I'm a fellow struggler, a fellow sinner, I can't do this. We fake it till we make it. We pretend to be perfect. Notice all of these approaches work outside in. Right? Just stop it as, as though that's possible. Is Well, just tell your hands to stop it. Tell your eyes to stop it. Be more religious. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something religious, and that's either going to outweigh the good, the, the bad, or, or it's going to make me stop stuff. The fake it till you make it, that's a completely about appearance. It's all, all of those solutions are about outside-in change, and they don't work. And frankly, they don't make sense. That's what Colossians is getting at, what we're going to study today. And I'm going to read Colossians 3 in just a moment, but I want to back up to a few verses we covered in the spring. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, and I, I'm just going to summarize it a little bit but starting i know what i'm doing wrong here i told y'all last week i have a page in my bible that's falling out and i just looked back to chapter two but the chapter two i'm looking back at is philippians two and it makes no sense because my colossians two is 
By the way, having a Bible where the pages are falling out, that doesn't make my sin go away either. This is not, I'm better than you because my Bible's falling apart. Colossians 2, verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Notice those rules are very um, external. Don't handle something, don't taste something, don't touch something. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on mere human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but with their self-imposed wisdom, with their false humility, with their harsh treatment of the body, <laughs> but really they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You might remember, you might not, but and you might not have even been here, but, but when we covered Colossians 2, they were taking Christ, and there were people who had broken their way into the church who were leading, who were saying, yeah, Christ is important, but he's not necessarily the center of things. What should really be the center of things is your ability to get a handle on stuff. And they taught the people in Colossae, these false teachers, that you didn't need Christ to be sufficient and supreme in your life. They, they essentially taught that he was not fully God and that more genuine, deeper spirituality was found in more human knowledge or better keeping of the rules or having more spiritual experiences. Now, we're not that different today because there are plenty of churches you can walk into that will tell you, here's what you need to do. And they'll give you the you, 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 you. So pick up chapter 3, verse 1. This one I do have right in my Bible with my page that's... Since then, you have been raised with Christ. That, again, also reference back to verse 2, the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead in the resurrection, and in your faith in him, you have been raised with Christ. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And we went deep into those two verses last week, so feel free to go back and, and absorb some of that. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, now, I just want you to catch here, your, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. This is saying the opposite of what Romans 7 had said. Remember when we started, I read Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do, what I want to do, I don't, and the good, and that whole deal. He, he said that I had sin living in me. Here he's saying your life is in Christ, not in sin. When he appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Then he tells us, so put to death. 
therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. So in the first list, he gives us a set of sins. Right? And that set of sins included things that are hotly debated today on whether they're sins. Sensual indulgence, sexual indulgence, greed, idolatry, impurity, lust, evil desires. Now he's going to give us another list. Now you must also rid yourselves. The word rid yourselves uh, literally can be like strip off the clothing. He's not telling us to get naked in church, by the way. Rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. You ever, you ever run in circles where people think, well, yeah, that's a really bad sin, but then they're like, but this one's, this one's more acceptable. Churches are full of this kind of discussion at times. Where you go, well, we don't do the really bad sins. What does that even mean? <laughs> do not lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And it goes on and, and it, it just kind of continues. And we're not going to make it through all of this today. So I, I'll see how far we make it. But, but I want to pause there and, and just say you can see he is clearly talking about this fact that what is happening in our thinking and what is happening in our souls, in our hearts, has a distinct impact on what happens in our sins. But he roots who we are and our identity back in who Christ is. Let me see if I can say this in a way that's more clear. If I'm going to find victory in my personal battle with sin, then it's not going to come down to me. It's going to come down to grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. Because I lack any ability at all to overcome something on my own. And so the way forward in battling my sin, even as a Christian, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 15 years old. You can do the math, I'm 50 today. That was a while ago. But the way forward in my battle with sin in 50-year-old Brian is not to rely on Brian. That that path of grace that created my salvation is the same path that will create the change that is needed in my heart, in my mind, in my soul, in my body. Does this make sense? And so what I'm getting at is this. In fact, the one thing I'm trying to say today, and just the one thing at the bottom of the first page, the way to find victory in my personal battle with sin is to preach the gospel to myself. 
And this might sound a little repetitive because I've already said something similar in the series. But I must learn to repeatedly and regularly preach the gospel to my son. But I'm not a preacher. One of the signs, bless you, one of the signs, <laughs> Phil, it is good to see you, man. Craig, it's always good to hear you and see you. We Christians uh, will say, like, I don't know if I can preach the gospel. I don't know that I know how to say the gospel. And, and what we mean is, I don't know how to give the speech the way the preacher gives the speech. So if someone in my life needs to hear the gospel, we'll call the preacher, and the preacher can tell them what the gospel is because I don't feel qualified to say what the gospel is. I, I want that to entirely change. You don't need a preacher to share the gospel with someone. But what that does mean is that <laughs> if I'm not comfortable telling it to somebody else, that also means I'm not telling it to myself very often. And the way forward in my battle with sin is to regularly preach the gospel to myself. Again, I just want to remind you, we got into this a bit last week, but verse 3 for you died, past tense, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, present tense. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, future tense, then you will also appear with him in glory. Notice what he is picturing here. Death, hidden, burial, life, resurrection. This is a picture of the... In fact, this is a picture of baptism as we picture baptism. Death and burial and resurrection. Because baptism is picturing the same thing. And so he is saying that the gospel is central to our ability to battle sin in our lives. It's the starting point, it's the middle point, and it's the ending point. And that I need grace to drive my soul, my heart, my mind, my body, my mental side, everything I do, I need that to be the primary, central, supreme thing in my life in any given moment. And what he is telling me is that as a Christian, I often take something else and elevate it to that place in my life where I relegate Christ to a spot over here while I elevate something else anger or rage or sexual indulgence or greed or lust some other sin I elevate that to a place over here that is more important and more strategic and build my life on more than I am building my life on what Christ has done for me. Let me bring this back to where I started. We think God loves me on my best day when I don't sin. One, I don't have any days where I don't sin. And two, 
Christ loves me, period. And the reason this matters is because we get over here where we've relegated Christ over there and we're, we're living in our sin over here and we get kind of comfortable there and, and the more comfortable we get here, the less likely we are to engage over there and pretty soon we don't forget about Christ. I'm talking about believers. We don't forget about Christ but we're feeling some not goodness, some guilt, some shame. And so we want that to stay hidden. Does that make sense? And we want to stay hidden in that. We're not, we're not, we're not ready to let that go. Because that begins to feel like our life. And Paul says, that's not your life. This is not your life. Christ is your life. Let me run back through it one more time, and let me give us some practical strategies rooted in grace that I think strengthen us in our battle with sin. I, I want to point out one thing before, before we go on, though, just so that I don't forget to say it. Verse 3, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Sometimes the Greeks would say when you died that you were hidden in the earth. The Bible is saying you aren't hidden in the earth, you are hidden in Christ. That's where your salvation is. And sometimes people say, when I die, how can I know? That God has me. There's so much finality there. And this says when a Christian dies that your life is hidden in Christ. You're secure in him. And you say, but I still got sin. I do what I don't want to do. That's why we're anticipating that future. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Notice it doesn't say you will appear with him in sin. There will be a final transformation in your life and my life and all our lives where sin is no longer the dominating force. And in this life, it doesn't have to be, but we have to choose the gospel. So let me give you four strategies for change empowered by grace. I'll move pretty quickly through these. Number one, Focus on what I need to unlearn and relearn to think like Jesus. What do I need to unlearn? What do I need to relearn? Science would tell us that our brains, every time we think a thought, that there are these uh, synapses, I think are the right word, but these synapses in your brain, and what happens is, is you think a, a thought, and the path develops from here to here, or from here to here, or from, I'm, I'm not quite a neuroscientist, or... I'm probably going to point to the wrong spots because you know that your brain has like different places. And I mean, this gets really confusing because you start to distinguish between the mind and the brain. What's the difference? But, but our thinking, you think a thought. Oh, okay. Next time you think a thought, third, fourth, fifth time you think a thought, 
what literally happens is you're building connections in your brain from ear to ear. And eventually, the more you think that thought, the more that thought becomes like, it. that's just true. It's just what I've always thought. It's just what I've always been. And we come into grace, into our relationship with Jesus Christ with a lot of predefined thoughts that we think, well, that's just the way it is. And part of what we need salvation to do, what we need grace to do, let's be clear, salvation is not you get better at your thinking, you get better at being religious, and maybe you'll go to heaven when your good outweighs your bad. That's not salvation, and that's not grace. Grace is while you were still sinners with these thoughts, Christ died for you. He was buried and on the third day, he was brought back to life for you to live inside of you. That on the cross, he paid the price for your sins. And that the path forward, in fact, the only path forward, the path of grace, the path of salvation, is the path where I realize I don't deserve any of this, but God loves me. And Jesus wants to live in my life and change me from the inside out. So the starting point's not learning and unlearning. The starting point is a relationship with Jesus Christ based on his grace. This, is this fair? Does this make, make a little bit of sense, I hope? But as I develop in my Christianity, as I grow in that walk with Christ, I need him to help begin to change my thinking. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things above not on earthly things. Grace prompts me to change what's going on inside of me. This is inside-out change. Because it's not me working on my life with Christ over there, and I got my sin, and I don't know what to do about it, but I'm collecting it, and I don't want to let go of it, and, and he's over there. Life in grace and salvation is me and Jesus working on my sin together. And that's the only path to victory there ever will be. Two. I need to explore the sin behind my sins. Explore the sin behind my sins. Let me see if I can make sense of, of this. I, in the notes, I said, you know what, I skipped one. Yeah, I did. See, I'm just trying to move on for your sake. All right, number two, take all sin seriously. Number three, explore the sin behind my sin. Let me put these together, make them make sense. Take all sin seriously. Note it said, put to death, verse five, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put it to death. The, the word here is a word used for execution. Put to death. That's pretty serious, right? Later he says, get rid of, take it off. Rage and anger and some of these other things. He's saying that there, there's no sense in which we go, well, you know, those are the really bad sins. But these sins over here, they're, they're you know, it's okay to keep some pet sins in my life that are really no big deal. He's reminding us that all sins are a big deal. And because of these, the wrath of God is coming, verse 6 says. These are the very sins Christ died for. So I've got to take my sins seriously. And an outcropping of that, 
That's number two, take all sin seriously. Number three, I need to explore the sin behind my sin. Notice he gets very clearly here. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. And he says, and greed or, or covetousness, wanting what isn't yours, which is idolatry. He's pointing out for us that in many ways, all sins are a breaking of the commandment to have no idols before God. Because I'm elevating something into the place of God in my life. And so the path to victory is the confession and the recognition that I've done exactly that. Christ loved me enough to, to put nothing else ahead of me. But I'm loving something else enough to put it ahead of him. And the sin behind my sins, far more often than not, is the sin of idolatry. It's, it, it's the sin of pride as well, if we really want to go deep. And so I have to be willing to deal with those deeper things and be honest about those deeper things rather than just, oh, well. In essence, what I'm getting at, number four, is that as a Christian, I need to learn to live for Jesus, not for my sin. It's really, really easy to live for some things that aren't worth living for. Because we get our identity wrapped up in people think I people think I'm a success. If people think I'm a success, then I can feel good about myself. And if I can feel good about myself, then maybe I can pretend to be a success. See how the pretending thing works. And that begins to drive our identity so much so that we're living for something that isn't Jesus. But when I, on the other hand, say success is not it and reputation is not it and self is not it and Frankly, pleasure's not it. And let's just be straight about pleasure for a moment in any, any kind, whether it's the pleasure of food or the pleasure of sex or the pleasure of any of the pleasures of this life. How many of those satisfy? How long do they satisfy? They're not even five seconds. Right? I mean, apparently there's some cake today. We're, we're putting temptation in front of all of us, right? And... And I'm going to eat a piece of cake, and I'm probably going to be satisfied for how long? Right. Right. Until I have cheesecake later in the day, right? These things don't satisfy. I'm made for someone who does that someone is Christ. And what I'm doing when I'm sinning is I'm trying to put the temporary in the place of the eternal. And so the way out of sin is the same grace that saved me to recognize that I've made this exchange. And this takes me back around to what I need to do is agree with God that I am trying to put something in his place and I need to turn back to him. 
We'll call that agreeing with God confession and that turning back to him repentance. Does this make some sense? Inside of this text are all these great metaphors for how change happens to us. It happens from the inside out, from heart to mind to body and action. It happens from below the surface to above the surface. You think about a uh, think about an iceberg. What everybody else sees is what's above the surface, but where change really has to take place is what's below the surface in our lives. Right? He's talking about a change that works from death to life, but in this case, death to sin. He's talking about a change from old life to new life, from old clothes to new clothes. We'll, we'll get into this in the weeks ahead, but he says, get rid of, and then he tells us that, that we're supposed to take off some things, and he's going to tell us to put on some things. And you know what we do when we take off the old, dirty, tattered clothes, the sinful clothes? We take them off. We maybe give them a little bit of a wash. We hang them back in the closet because we're going to put them back on again tomorrow. And he's saying, don't put those things back on. Put on Christ and his way of life. The change I need is really the only change there's ever been. And that's what Jesus has done for my sins. What he's telling me is that I make things into an idol that begin to absorb my heart and my imagination more than God. And if victory is to come, it comes in Christ and letting him absorb my imaginations and my desires and my aspirations and my mind and my thinking. Can I pray this for you? We always end our sermon with two prayers. The first is a prayer of salvation and the second is a prayer of application. And if you've never received Christ and what he has done for you, then maybe today, right here in this moment, online or, or here in the room, maybe today you would say, I need Jesus. Because I can't do any of this on my own. I need his presence. I need, I need what this represents. I need forgiveness and mercy. I need the compassion of God. But... But as much as anything, I just need a relationship with God in my life. And if that's you and you want to begin that relationship with God today, based on what Jesus has done for you on the cross and in the resurrection, maybe you'd pray with me, even online, right here, right now. Dear Jesus, I don't deserve you. And I know that. But the Bible says you love me. So I'm going to believe that. And the Bible says that you love me enough to die for my sins and be buried and come back to life. So Jesus, live in my life and forgive me and take over my life and work inside my soul to make change happen. Transform my heart, Jesus. I pray in your name.
Amen. If that's you and you prayed to follow Christ, maybe for the very first time today, again, here in the room or online, I'd love to know it. There's a lot of ways to let me know. We'd just love to celebrate it. We'd love to welcome you to the family of God and to the Harvest family, but we only get to welcome you if we know about it. So you can find me afterwards. You can tell somebody you came with. Online, you can fill out a digital communication card. For that matter, you can even email me. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at HarvestChurchEugene.com. We would love to celebrate that Christ has found you and that you have now been found in Christ. A lot of you prayed like that a while back, right? And yet there's still a battle with sin going on inside of you every day, right? Would you pray this prayer of application with me? Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me beyond my sins. And thank you that grace can change what I cannot. Bring victory to my heart, to my mind, to my wrestling match with sin. Help me to think like you. Help me to see life the way you see it. Help me to live for your love. Help me to preach the gospel to myself. I want to others. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. Thank you for those birthday well wishes.